contact, making contact, making, making, making contact. This week on Making Contact. An Oakland African-American matriarch fights for educational justice for the grandkids she's raising. I said, we have a history of dyslexia. And they said, no, that wasn't the problem. That's when the fight began. We hear about the students falling further and further behind in public school without the resources they need to learn how to read. I'm sure if I had the resources, I could put him in a private school and he would get the help. But because I don't have the resources, I can't get the help. And so you'd be a candidate for the state prison or whatever prison there is. Dyslexia is a language-based learning disability that affects the brain's ability to match letters with their shapes and sounds. It impacts reading, writing, and sometimes speech. Lots of states these days have laws on the books that define dyslexia, call on school districts to screen for it early, and spell out the most effective way to teach students with dyslexia to read. But California's guidelines aren't mandatory. And it turns out most districts still lag behind the science. That failure weighs heavily on low-income kids of color. Reporter Lee Romney walks us through one African-American family's struggle for educational justice in Oakland. As for stated, I am Geraldine Robinson, and I am a fighting grandmother. Geraldine is a devout and joyful Christian who's now raising three of her grandchildren. She's been a relentless advocate for two of them in particular. And I am fighting for their life. It started about six years On this fall evening in 2019, the crowd is celebrating the 40th anniversary of a disability rights nonprofit and honoring this Oakland matriarch. Her grandson and his younger sister showed early signs of dyslexia. About 30 years ago, I had two sons that had dyslexia. So I knew some of the signs. Dyslexia runs in families. So Geraldine talked to the kids' teachers. I said, we have a history of dyslexia. And they said, no, that wasn't the problem. That's when the fight began. So Research shows that even people with severe dyslexia can be taught to read. The longer the wait, though, the longer it takes. But evaluations of Geraldine's grandkids never mentioned the learning disability. Instead, they assigned the kids to a different special ed category. Intellectually disabled. That suggests a child is globally impaired. Low expectations often translate into fewer intensive resources to address underlying learning challenges, like dyslexia. Bias adds another twist. Nationwide, black students are overrepresented in the category of intellectual disability. And some educators are more likely to punish black students for falling short, even if it's clear the work is too hard for them. My grandson, who didn't have a behavior problem, was never able to go on field trips. They wouldn't allow him because of his academics. Tonight, though, Geraldine is feeling grateful because an advocate here at the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund taught her exactly which law to cite to fight for her grandson. 
which changed his life because he was able to go hang out with the rest of the kids. And so that was... The bigger news, a few months earlier, the Oakland Unified School District agreed to pay for intensive evaluations of both kids by an outside neuropsychologist. So they were tested for dyslexia after five years of fighting. As each year slipped by, Geraldine's grandsons fell further and further behind, and securing those independent evaluations wasn't the end of her fight. You'll hear more a bit later from Cheryl Thies, the education advocate who's been helping Geraldine. But she had something to say about the family that night that you should keep in mind as you follow their journey. They're a perfect example of doing everything right and still getting nowhere. Because assumptions were made around the intersection of race and disability that these children were just low ability children. Before we get back to Geraldine's story, I want you to get a better feel for dyslexia. It's neurobiological in origin. Anywhere from 5 to 20% of the population are believed to have it, including lots of high-achieving public figures who tell their stories to help end the stigma. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Thank you for being so open about this. A few years back, Cheryl Jennings of ABC7 interviewed our now governor, Gavin Newsom, about the shame kids with dyslexia can carry. He was one of them. He dreaded reading aloud. That moment where the clock didn't strike and I had to stand up and people start laughing. I'm shaking and I'm trying to read and I can't. You feel dumb. Uh, you feel isolated. Uh, people call you dumb. But to really get it, it helps to go a little deeper into the dyslexic brain. We are going to participate in a simulation today where you will experience what it's like to be in a classroom uh, with dyslexia. Yeah, thank you. Megan Potente is a San Francisco educational therapist and a leader of Decoding Dyslexia California, a grassroots movement of parents and educators. Her family has a history of dyslexia, just like Geraldine's. On this spring Saturday, she's using a kit developed by the Dyslexia Training Institute to blow some teachers' minds. So for this, I will need seven volunteers. The first exercise is a round-robin read-aloud, typical in plenty of classrooms. People with dyslexia see letters and words the same way those without dyslexia do. They just take an alternative neurological route to connect the letter with its appropriate sound. But a few packets are booby-trapped to mimic what a dyslexic reader might experience. If they read something over the something, they would improve. I have seen. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're, we're running out of time. What what did you learn? Uh, I'm not really sure. So oh, yeah, okay, uh, student six. Because the dyslexic brain struggles to connect letter symbols with their sounds, it can be hard to distinguish I's from E's, P's from B's or T's, and so on. Our unlucky volunteer was working so hard to decode the text, she couldn't absorb the content. It's also hard for dyslexic students to express their thoughts or intelligence in writing. We give that a shot, too. One woman shares that she'd wanted to write, yesterday we drove to the hospital. But I couldn't use all the words, so instead I just said, yesterday I drove, we went in our car. 
with yeah. the letters changed. So we've been doing this for a little over an hour. How would you feel if you had to experience this every day, all day long? I wouldn't like school. I wouldn't want to go to school. Geraldine has witnessed that pain, that shame, and she doesn't want to further stigmatize her grandkids, so we're not naming them. Even though she's been fighting hard for two of them, this story focuses mainly on her grandson, because as a black boy, it's his future, Geraldine says, she fears for the most. She's had full custody of the kids for a while now, but even as toddlers, they lived with her on and off. Her grandson showed early red flags for dyslexia. His letters was backwards or sideways or uh, maybe even upside down. He would have such a hard time trying to distinguish what the word was. And even with his phonics, if I pointed out the phonics, he could say it. But then when we put it to the word, he could not exactly read the word with the phonics in there. Geraldine read to him a lot. The Dr. Seuss books. And the Amelia Bedelia series. <laughs> she was a busybody. Her grandson loved wrestling, so they brought home wrestling magazines, but... After a period of time, he wouldn't even look at the magazine because it was a struggle. Outside of those frustrations, she says, he was and is a gentle, caring kid. If he has something, he, he wants everybody else to have it. He, he sometimes gives his away so somebody else could have it. He's also a drummer. He started at five years old, and he now plays at the family's small East Oakland church. And he almost just automatically knew how to do it. You know, he could keep a beat, you know, right off the bat. And he's a whiz at building and repairing things. About two years ago, when he was 12, a friend had bought a part for my car, and he couldn't figure out how to put it on. And he say, he told my friend, move back, move back. I got an idea. And he says, go get me some black tape. Grandma got some black tape. So he gets the black tape, and he went in up under the hood and fixed it. And the car is still running with the way he fixed it, just Creative, you know, he can see something and create it. It's just the writing and the reading part he cannot do. That bleeds into every school subject. Nationwide curriculum standards developed about a decade ago, for example, rely heavily on word problems to teach math. And so you're just not doing a math problem. You're doing reading and math. He tries. He really does try, but it's a disability. And... With the schools not accepting his disability the way it is, he have lost a lot of ground. To be clear, the Oakland Unified School District didn't just abandon this boy to fail. Geraldine gave me permission to look at her grandson's records. They show he got speech therapy and was pulled out of general ed classes to get some extra help. But none of it involved the type of reading instruction that dyslexic learners need. His annual special ed documents were supposed to address his strengths, but mostly they didn't. They did spell out ambitious goals for him year after year, but... They never achieved the goals. 
He's never achieved a goal. Some teachers blamed him for his frustrations. Quote, he sulks a lot, is often angry, but will not talk about it. He rarely attempts any classwork, one fifth grade teacher wrote in an evaluation. A seventh grade teacher said he, quote, sometimes can be very difficult when it comes to his work. Most of his teachers say that he could do better, but he doesn't apply himself. And I said, it's not that he doesn't apply himself. His dyslexia, she says, makes it harder for him. When dyslexia goes unrecognized and unremediated, experts say low self-esteem, depression, and anxiety almost always follow. Geraldine says that during her grandson's seventh grade year, he was sleeping so much, she had him evaluated for narcolepsy. That wasn't the problem. Just a week before she and I first meet in April 2019, she tells me, he came home with this headache and the shakes and the whole nine yards where he's frustrated that he can't. And he's been like that the rest of the week, terrified and uh, stressed. You're listening to Geraldine's story, how public schools are failing Black students with dyslexia on Making Contact. This program is offered for free to radio stations around the world. Check us out on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up in the second half, Geraldine Robinson takes the fight for her grandson's education to the next level. Even as the years took a toll on her grandson, though, big things were happening in Sacramento, as this early 2016 ABC7 News report notes. There's a new law going into effect this year which acknowledges the learning disorder dyslexia in the education code. Yeah, it will help children get access to special education and related services. You know, medical experts tell us that one in five children suffers from dyslexia. The legislation called for experts to draft guidelines for California's public schools that would spell out best practices for teacher training, universal screening, and the type of curriculum known to work best for dyslexic learners. It's called structured literacy, and it explicitly teaches kids how to match letters with their sounds and break words into parts to read them. It works for all readers, but for dyslexic learners, it's critical. In 2017, the state released those guidelines, 125 pages long. They aren't mandatory, but still, that official acknowledgement of dyslexia likely helped Geraldine when the following year... I wrote a letter to the district and to the state. It was a formal complaint, and the California Department of Education agreed. The Oakland Unified School District had to assess Geraldine's grandson for dyslexia. They did. There was a problem, though. Here's Cheryl Thies, the education advocate we met at the beginning of the story. The result of that evaluation was so poor, I mean, there is no other way to put it, and I say that as someone who has a lot of respect for people working at the school district level. Evaluations are supposed to draw on parent and teacher interviews, class observation, and a variety of tests conducted by an educational psychologist. But a review of the district's eval, ordered by the state, shows it had none of that. Cheryl consulted a dyslexia expert who told her that the district psychologist responsible clearly had no training in 
dyslexia and how to evaluate and identify it. Rather than turn to the state guidelines or other expert sources, Cheryl's consultant noticed the district psychologist had pulled her dyslexia definitions directly from two non-scientific websites. They weren't accurate. It also pointed to the fact that she was cutting corners. The psychologist conducted no new tests on her grandson. Instead, the paperwork shows she relied on his previous evaluations, the ones that had stuck him with that label of intellectually disabled. And because of that, the district psychologist concluded, quote, he does not fit the profile of a student with dyslexia. Cheryl says assuming a child with intellectual disability cannot have dyslexia or benefit from dyslexia intervention. That's factually incorrect. We know from the science that those two things are not mutually exclusive. Plus, Geraldine had contested those very evaluations. So at the next meeting to discuss the boys' special ed plan. I just looked at the program manager and said, we're asking for an independent evaluation. And they immediately said, yes, we'll fund an independent evaluation. But it begs the question, what parent who doesn't know that there's even such a thing as the right to challenge an assessment would just go, well, that didn't seem right, but I guess they're the experts. This point Cheryl's making is really important. How does a parent or guardian become an expert? What does it take to wield that power in a way that brings about real change for your kid? And why are some kids left behind in the first place? It turns out race and class are woven through the answers to those questions. Kareem Weaver sits on the Education Committee of the Oakland NAACP, and he's been playing a big role in pushing Oakland Unified to comply with the state dyslexia guidelines. What shows up as a racialized outcome, meaning black and brown kids aren't getting the help they need, they're not being identified, they're not giving the support, and all that's true. Really, what's behind that, as we've identified, are two gaps, an expectation gap and a resource gap. The expectation gap, that's what leads educators to never flag a kid for a learning disability in the first place. Or it can lead school psychologists to gravitate to that label of intellectually disabled and write them off as a kid who just can't and never will. Instead of saying, wait a second, you mean this child full of brilliance can't read by the end of first grade? There is a full scale on alert here. This is a problem. That's how you act when your kid can't read and you know they're capable of doing it. The resource gap, it plays out this way. Federal law requires school districts to provide a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive setting to students with disabilities. That includes students with dyslexia severe enough to affect their academic progress. Parents or guardians who believe their kids aren't being properly assessed or served, they can fight, but it's not a fair fight. Because those who have the advocacy, those who have the money and resources to get lawyered up, to fill in the gaps where the school system did not, their kids are going to be all right. Like this, these are private, right? Right. Every once in a while, we do have districts that um, place a child that's handled. It's very rare, though. <laughs> very rare. A couple of months after I first meet Geraldine, I decide to check out EdRev, a huge annual expo focused on students with learning differences. I want to get a sense of what's available to dyslexic learners to see if there are any options for low-income families like Geraldine's. The news is not good. 
This administrator says districts will sometimes pay to place students at her private school, but that tends to happen only when families lawyer up. She directs me to a guy at a table down the way. Special ed attorney. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's well, down. you don't mess with him. He is yeah, like, yeah. Interesting. Good to know. Some schools do help subsidize tuition for families in need. Not all, though. Do you guys do scholarships? Not very much. It's quite negligible, quite honestly. It's a month's tuition. There's plenty of one-on-one -on -one tutoring represented here today, too. We are in-home tutoring, so we don't have a center. We oh. just send our tutors to work with families Got at their it. home. And is it all private? Uh, yes. It is. Okay. Later in the morning, I bump into Steve Carnavale. He's a venture capitalist and big donor for dyslexia causes who founded and co-chairs the Dyslexia Center at the University of California, San Francisco. The center takes all of its research and innovations and applies it to a very fortunate group of kids from an elite private school for dyslexic students. Carnavale was once president of the board of trustees there. And, you know, we raise $1.5 million a year to go to scholarships, but it's still a drop in the bucket. I've come to realize that the underserved populations are completely ignored. The vast majority were not serving at all. Geraldine is more aware of this with each passing year. I'm sure if I had the resources, I could put him in a private school and he would get the help. But because I don't have the resources... I can't get the help, and so you'd be a candidate for the state prison or whatever prison there is. Literacy and incarceration are correlated. A study of Texas prison inmates two decades ago estimated about half of them likely had dyslexia, and nearly two-thirds of them scored poorly on reading comprehension. It's such a concern that Congress, two years ago, passed a law requiring dyslexia screening for inmates in federal prisons. Geraldine knows our grandson is at risk, and he has plenty of company. Black, Latino, and Pacific Islander students in the Oakland Unified School District are four times more likely to be reading multiple years below grade level than white students. The NAACP's Kareem Weaver gets it. His own nephew, who went to Oakland schools, wasn't assessed for dyslexia until he wound up in the criminal justice system. The trauma, the unnecessary trauma, to have to go to jail to be screened for dyslexia is sick as a society. So I understand Geraldine's concern. It's a real concern. The impact on her grandson's self-esteem and what that could lead to in terms of emotional stability, in terms of belief in self, in terms of, you, you know, your capacity to guide your own path. So I know the urgency she feels. In the fall of 2019, Geraldine gets the results from the outside neuropsychologist, the grandkids she's been fighting for for so long. Both of them had dyslexia. Not just dyslexia. Both struggle with other learning differences, too. But the independent evaluator concluded neither child meets the criteria for intellectual disability. And at last, things start to get a little better. The district moves the kids to a different school, where for the first time, they have access to speech-to-text and text-to-speech technology to help override their reading and writing difficulties. Geraldine tells me her grandson is particularly transformed. They put him in a place with 
kids of his same level, and he's good at math, and he was able to help other kids. By the end of school year, he had a little bit more self-confidence, self-worth. His eighth-grade special ed teacher agreed. In her evaluation in March of 2020, she wrote that he'd made, quote, immense social, emotional, and academic progress, that he was, quote, an exceptional math student who, quote, always cooperates with his teachers and students alike. In science class, he'd created recycling projects and presentations on natural disasters. His teacher also happened to be one of the district's first instructors to get trained on a new structured literacy curriculum for use in special ed classrooms. Geraldine's grandson was making his way through the very first level. The school has really been working with them, but I've been fighting for this for six years. Oakland Unified declined to comment on Geraldine's case, citing privacy reasons. But a spokesman said the district, quote, is committed to providing explicit daily instruction in foundational literacy skills to students. And it looks like that's starting to happen. This past school year, the district started using a new diagnostic screening tool on its youngest students to catch problems like dyslexia early on. Kareem Weaver of the Oakland NAACP has also mounted a full-bore campaign to press the district to put a structured literacy curriculum in place for all students, not just those in special ed. The superintendent was very clear. She agrees that we need a structured approach. We need to support kids um, who need foundational skills taught explicitly, directly, and systematically. That includes dyslexic students. There is some other hope for kids just starting public school. Legislation introduced in January 2021 would require all districts statewide to screen students in kindergarten through second grade to see if they're at risk for dyslexia. Helping older kids, though, who are already way behind, that's a bigger, more expensive lift. That glowing evaluation Geraldine's grandson got from his eighth grade teacher in March 2020 noted he was reading at a third grade level. Then, two days later, schools closed due to the coronavirus, and they haven't opened back up yet. The older kids can't afford a year in the tank. They're just now scratching the surface and being able to claw their way out of a hole. The COVID school shutdown means Geraldine's grandson started ninth grade remotely. It's been rough. In fact, Geraldine says all her grandkids are losing academic ground, like so many other kids. It's KQED News. Oakland students are among those filing a lawsuit today against the state of California and its top education leaders, alleging they're denying students an equal right to an education during the pandemic. The Oakland Reach, a grassroots group of parents and guardians pushing to reverse generations of poor reading outcomes, joined counterparts in Los Angeles in filing that action. It contends that black and brown students, low-income students, unhoused students, and students with disabilities aren't getting the remote learning help they need. Geraldine's grandson checks three of those boxes. The district did give him some one-on-one -on -one help, though, starting last summer a reading tutor who worked with him remotely. She did make some progress, some very good progress. She was very good. She was very uh, attentive. But that district-funded tutoring ended in December. I was feeling like I was getting somewhere with both of the children, and now I feel like um, <laughs> I'm left on a cliff <laughs> without a rope, you know. 
now would be the time for them to get the help so they can catch up if possible and be able to move forward. It would be right now. But without the help, they're leaving them farther and farther behind. Geraldine says she's pressing the district to extend the tutoring. Private help would cost about $90 an hour, well beyond her budget. This program was narrated, written, and produced by Lee Romney. You've been listening to Geraldine's story, How Public Schools Are Failing Black Students with Dyslexia, on Making Contact. Editors Lisa Morehouse and Monica Lopez. Engineer James Rollins. Show Distribution, Anita Johnson. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Sonia Green. Producers Salima Hamorani, Anita Johnson, and Monica Lopez. Web Updates, Sabine Blazon. And I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.